Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 49, Raising Healthy Kids. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Thanks for tuning in and welcome back if you're a loyal listener. Uh, we love having you here. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa in studio today again with the world famous <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Michael Smith. <laughs> Although he doesn't think so, not today. Uh, we're feeling a little goofy behind the mics today because uh, we've got a topic that's actually bringing out the kid in us, Yep. <laughs> uh, raising healthy kids. And uh, when Michael presented the idea of talking about kids today, I thought to myself, why does Michael want to talk about kids? So maybe I'll ask him that and he'll tell you. Michael, what is it about kids that's uh, making you want to do a podcast today? Uh, well, I guess from the goofy perspective, I was going to make the silly comment. Well, they just keep coming into the world. I don't know. <laughs> like this, They're everywhere. It's like a volcano. They just keep showing up. <laughs> be a good idea to know what to do with them. Uh, honestly, though, um, I, I see a lot of kids in my practice, and depending on the age... Um, I guess this is more about me than them, but I have to kind of come up with a way to interact with them in a way that, you know, catches their attention and allows me to kind of figure out what's really going on because younger people, you could say are a lot harder to interview and diagnose and get really, you know, good coherent, you know, responses from. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a lot of fun working with kids because I have to be really creative and in the moment and spontaneous. And also because... Uh, working with kids is often sort of a generational thing because if I'm working with a family that say has you know one or both parents dealing with an autoimmune problem, which is kind of my thing, uh, their kids are often either at risk or already presenting certain kind of little um, dashboard lights or warning lights saying it's quite likely that they're going to start developing some kind of uh, concern. And this is going to seem, I don't know, like I'm going to drive down a dark alley for a minute, but it's just quickly for perspective. If us listening to this right now are all adults in the sense of medical statistics, by the time most of us are in midlife, um, we're going to be facing a, a statistic of having, you know, a one in two to a one in three chance of becoming chronically ill and chronically medicated, you know, as adults. So statistically, if we're looking at our children right now, it's 2018 and uh, again, you know, if you're at 50, it's, you know, 50% chance or a bit less that you're going to need medical care. What are you, what, what do we think the statistics of your average eight-year-old right now in 40 years requiring, you know, medical care? And it's probably not going to be better. I'm hoping it's going to be better. I'm hoping things like this podcast and, you know, every health book on Amazon is going to inspire people to really shift gears. But, you know, if we just sit passively looking at statistics and if culturally we sit passively looking at health... It's, it's going to be worse in 40 years. So that's my concern. And I have a, a lot of people, you know, I guess as patients who maybe they don't bring in their kids, but we end up talking about how hard it is to raise healthy kids, especially kids with health problems. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, just the idea of actually coming together to talk about raising kids, uh, healthy kids, made me um, curious. Uh, I mean, you've been uh, practicing um, functional medicine and Chinese medicine for a number of years. Um, 22 have you seen any kind of uh, changes in uh, how kids present with their health over the years? Uh, yeah, it's just getting more precarious. Hmm. In, uh, is there any one particular spot or is it kind of a general thing that you can speak to? 
I think if I was working in a general medical practice where lots of, I guess, if it, or especially in a pediatric clinic where there'd be a lot of different uh, streams of children coming in, then I'd feel much more comfortable saying, this is what I think about the health of our children. But because my practice is fairly narrowed down into weird immune system glitches and things like that, most of the people I see are going to be coming to me because of that class of health concern. So I, I just want to be honest. I mean, clearly what I'm seeing getting more precarious is dysfunctional immune system problems, allergies, uh, changes in, you know, fertility, especially with younger men and women, uh, things like that. So clearly that's where my, you know, my report would, you know, if I was to come back and give a report, it would be, well, when you look at the whole immune system, autoimmune kind of like genetic epigenetic thing, it's, it's not going well. Mm. And, and every decade it actually gets more precarious. And I, I can't say I have any, um, research on this, but it, this just came into my head as kind of an intuitive sense. I would say that every decade, the problems are receding back about two years. So if a, people usually get this problem at 12, now they're going to get at 10. Hmm. It, it also makes me think, um, I mean, kids are being brought in by their parents or caregivers, whomever they are. Um, have you noticed anything in terms of the way uh, parents have acted or how they are with their kids uh, with regards to their health over the years? Well, that jumps way ahead to the end of the podcast, but I'll... Okay, well... That's okay. I'll, 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 I'll begin that conversation and, and then we can come back to it at the end if that's okay. Sure. Um, so something that I have noticed, and I think we talked about this in the podcast about a year ago, is something that I would call audience consciousness. So this is maybe over the last 50, 60 years where most of us are inculcated into interacting with our culture by sitting and watching our teacher and sitting and watching TV and sitting and watching sports, sitting and watching movies. Uh, now we have YouTube and Facebook and then there's all these things where our, um, inculcated access to growth and information and experience for the most part is sit and wait. Hmm. You know, I just saw this statistic. So I just saw this statistic a little while ago and I think it was from one of the Nordic countries. Uh, where they tripled their recess, and I could have that um, uh, citation totally wrong, but the mental agility and the behavioral capacity of this entire you know group of schools statistically got way better by giving them a 45-minute recess to run around and bang into the world and each other, hmm. right? So the more we reinforce the schooling system, the inculcation system, and that's not a conspiratorial thing, it's inevitable, less arts, less sports, less music, less recess, less lunch, less whatever, the more industrialized we try and formalize our education, uh, the worse it's getting experientially for children and especially around the ability to communicate. So let's say for 60 years, we've had a relatively increasing sit and watch culture. See, that's reasonable. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's three generations of people um, becoming more familiar with and more accepting of a sit and watch lifestyle. Right. So as parents, and I know as a parent, I may or may not have over, um, allowed screen time and stuff like that. Uh, and also I didn't grow up with a TV. So for me, the association isn't nearly as, uh, hardened into my life, but I, you know, speaking with lots of friends, lots of other parents and stuff, uh, in terms of age and generation, it's in like, in like for people in my generation, you, you know, if you grew up around a TV and you're raising your kids and my kid's 17, so I started raising my kid almost 20 years ago. So for that, that length of time, you know, and our culture becoming more and more screen dependent and screen accepting, and again, no conspiracies here. I'm just reporting what people are up to. 
So again, people in my generation are that much more accepting of using screen time as, you know, a part of just natural parenting style. Hmm. So now it's like, okay, I'm going to go and make dinner and there's a lot of more single parents and split up families. So the parents need more alone time to get things done. So now we park our kids in front of screens, hmm. you know, and that was say 20 years ago. And I don't think we all had iPhones 20 years ago. No. 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 So now we have people uh, maybe say in their 30s, right? And they're raising kids and they they grew up in a screen um friendly kind of culture. So they're going to raise their kids in a screen, you know, dependent family. But now people who are 30, when they think of screen dependent uh, approval, you know, okay, this is my kid. And he, he or she is busy doing something with now an iPad or an iPhone instead of sitting in a room watching, say, a cartoon. Mm -hmm. And this, this is the thing I want to help people kind of frame because if I walk into a room and there's three or four people sitting watching a TV show it's kind of implicit that we could all make a joke about what's on the screen and have a little personal time and interrupt each other and ask questions about what you want with your supper or, you know, whatever. But now there's this weird shift, which is now you're, when you're sitting there in a very isolated, you know, one-to-one, -one, you know, mano a mano kind of thing with the screen, there's this implicit, implicit instinct that you're having a very personal experience. Hmm. And then maybe in, in a little while, I'll come back to some of the psychology of what may be happening there. But I think that's our biggest, honestly, overwhelming threat to our ability to interact with and understand ourselves as people socially. So I think that's my biggest concern right now with just parenting style is we're way, way, way too unaware of some of the potential negative outcomes of too much time. Uh, it, it honestly, ex instinctually becoming wired into short-term gratification and a very different association with how to connect with people. And most importantly, how completely unadaptable most people who are screen addicted mm -hmm. are to interaction with people they don't know. Right. Like, you know, stranger danger. Oh my God, this person said something threatening. I feel all triggered. I need to go and, you know, f find a place to deal with the fact that this interaction was, you know, overwhelming in a way. Yeah. Right. And we're seeing that more and more. I'm just trying to have a, understand the why of it instead of having an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you had said that this is, I guess, more the, uh, the in-depth part of the conversation that you wanted to get into, but I still think it's uh, an interesting uh, foray into the whole idea of actually raising healthy kids. Well, I, th I think it's a, a fundamental theme and I definitely want to make sure we really go deep into that, you mm -hmm. know, at some point in the conversation. I just wanted, I just, my, my mind naturally thought, okay, if we're going to talk about kids, let's start. Uh, with respect to health as, well, let's make sure they're born healthy and let's make sure that their, you know, infant years are healthy and kind of walk through the, the process from, from birth until the conversation we're sort of having now, which is how do we make sure people in their teens socialize in an, an effective way so that they can operate in the world in a way that is more inclusive of the world mm -hmm. as random and weird and mean and jangly and, you know, wordly as it is. <laughs> yeah, warts and all. Warts and all. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, well then let's pick up the needle and drop it back at the beginning of the record then. You said you want to talk about uh, how... Um, uh, awesome image. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty good at that. So 1980s though. <laughs> yeah, so is my outfit today. For those of you who are watching the... Oh, right, nice. ...watching the podcast. Um, I got this at a thrift store for only three bucks. Nice. Yeah. Um, and some of you are actually saying that's too much money. <laughs> <laughs> what, you didn't make that yourself by chewing on dead animals? <laughs> no, no, no. Somebody else did. I paid them three bucks for it. There you go. Uh, I wanted to bring the conversation back to this point um, 
of where we want to talk about raising healthy kids. You want to start right at the beginning? Uh, like, uh, is it, do you want to talk about, you know, what uh, uh, mom and pop should be doing? <laughs> or uh, how, how far back do you want to go? Sorry, I just thought, oh yeah, let's do the birds and the bees talk. That'd be funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I'm asking. So, so there's this uh, concept in Chinese medicine we call Jing. Say that uh, again? Jing, J-I-N-G. Okay. Um, lots of ways to translate it. And unfortunately, when you translate any meaningful Chinese terminology into English, it becomes a literal noun or a literal, I don't know, like dampness or wind or something. Sure. So it, it lessens our ability to communicate. So although I'm going to say the word Jing, what I'm going to ask people to, to put underneath of that umbrella term uh, is basically everything that makes vitality possible on a material level. Hmm. Um, and that would be uh, nutrient nutrients, hormones, neurotransmitters, water, and then the functional capacity of restoration, like rest and eating, and basically everything that makes what you might consider the battery storage power of every one of your cells, and the personal strength, patience, adaptability power of the integrity of your person. Hmm. And you could even sort of throw in the middle of that the natural confidence and playfulness of assuming that you have enough guile as a person and enough mojo as a physical being to like run into the jungle of the world and play and learn and, uh, you know, have fun with it all. So that's this idea of Jing is, you know, uh, it's our potential deepest resourcefulness in life. Mm -hmm. But it can be under the idea of, say, a literal or metaphoric microscope determined down to things like, you know, are you eating enough fat? Are you getting enough B12? You know, and those kind of things. Because obviously if you refine or what you might consider alchemically to rarefy the quality of your, your physicality and your um, physiological capacity as a, as a, I don't know, a primate or something, that's going to, everyone's going to notice because you're that vital. And it brings up that concept of vitalism. Mm -hmm. which is uh, a bit of a philosophical thing that's been around for thousands of years, which is life is about maximizing the potential of life. You just have to get out of the way. Trust every one of your cells not how to heal itself, that every one of your uh, organs is doing its very best to cooperate. And the less interference, the better it's going to go for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if we're um, examining the idea of the everythingness of health, the jing of it. Mm -hmm. um, how does that relate to uh, the topic of the day? Uh, I mean, I guess around, uh, say, babies or toddlers or preschoolers, that sort of thing. Do you want to do you want to sort of care? Glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here. So the reason I bring up jing is that the health of the mother, especially, but the health of the father too, and the sense of reproductive health, is obviously the ground or the, the soil of the garden in which the fetus is going to turn into a person. Mm -hmm. So uh, usually if I'm working with fertility clients or patients, uh, usually because of infertility, we commit to a six-month window of improving the qing of, or the health and the immuno, immunological interference of both parents before we even consider talking about beginning to try getting pregnant. So if anyone uh, on the show listening has any concerns or even some intuitive frustration around their fertility, don't try and have a baby because your body might be overreacting to something within the process of implanting a fetus in, into the womb uh, or some other subtle things for men that um, 
you're actually going to make the situation worse trying to get pregnant sooner than stopping trying to get pregnant and solving the why you're not getting pregnant and then just getting pregnant. Hmm. So that would say step one. Uh, step two, if you are pregnant, um, do everything you can in the context of Jing, you know, in terms of diet and lifestyle and things like that. Or obviously, if you're pregnant and for whatever reason you feel in some way economically, socially, emotionally, relationshiply um, insecure in some way, attend to those things as soon as you can. You know, make, make a bigger tribe, make a bigger association of people. Because if you're precariously dependent on one person who may or may not really be there for you, that's instinctually, I don't know, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a metaphor. I don't know. This is not, not an accurate metaphor, but it's a funny image. So I'm going to run with it. Imagine you climbed a tree and you're on a branch and you're out on the edge of the branch. And for some reason you've turned around towards the tree and you're trying to decide whether or not you should just start a fire on the branch you're sitting on. Interesting. In the sense that you're aligned with maybe, you know, and I'm trying not to be rude here, but so you're a girl and you're with a boy and you, you guys got pregnant together and the boy may or may not be a man. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> mm. It happens, right? So as the woman who now is going to be making a human, uh, security and, you know, foundational things and root conditions that allow you to basically feel cared for and supported are just essential. And if you can't get that from, you know, the guy, then start looking out for all the other women in your circle and all the other people in your family and even uh, shelters and, you know, social services and stuff. Can appreciate that that metaphor of starting a fire on a tree limb by yourself is a little bit, I don't know, maybe over the top. But again, if you're a woman and you're not feeling comfortable relying on the man and you're pregnant together in a, in a way... It's just really essentially important on an instinctual level for everyone involved to be doing everything they can to make sure the woman has everything uh, necessary to bring that person into the world. Mm -hmm. And if not, that's going to affect the health of that child. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, um, I would think by North American standards, um, I mean, certainly in my own experience, the idea of raising a kid on my own with a significant other has always scared the bejesus out of me. But I think that's because of how um, I was raised uh, culturally, uh, where there's always tons of family around. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know friends who um, have gone through relationship and are now single parents and doing it all on, the, on their own and struggling with it, uh, stressed out to the max financially and emotionally and all different kinds of ways. So it's interesting that that's kind of a, um, and a, a, a healthy ingredient is to actually seek, you know, I'm making air quotes here, mm -hmm. family. Uh, to support you to be um, a parent. Yeah, and it's interesting living where we do. Um, there, there's sort of a running joke with uh, single mums in this part of the world where, um, you know, men come here to try and, you know, find the life because it's a pretty miraculous place to live. And then they end up, you know, meeting somebody and having a kid. And then they end up moving back to the big city because there's no way to support their family here. So they end up leaving their family behind to go and find you know, some kind of, I don't know, meaningful life for themselves. So that we have this, I'm not going to say army, but a pretty large tribe of single moms with kids in, in this community mm -hmm. who have made a big extended family with each other. So there's play dates, there's all kinds of other things that make sure that, you know, pregnant moms, new moms, uh, and probably for at least the first 12 to 14 years of, of a child's life, there's just this big extended community of people taking care of each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and then the opposite of that is the dangerous thing. The dangerous thing? For kids to be raised up by isolated, isolated children raised by isolated parents. Yeah. Yeah. That, 
um, I've, again, my own experience, um, it was actually kind of rare um, when I was growing up, uh, going through grade school, to actually mm -hmm. have somebody be in a single parent family, <coughs> whereas these days it's more common than not. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, 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 I think, why we're having this conversation is, it's not that we can suddenly change the momentum of that part of our culture, but we can definitely, I think, collectively find ways to be much more focused in on the well-being of our children. And uh, I'll, I'll speak to this, and I, I get the feeling this is going to be a bit all over the place as much as I wanted to try and organize it. But um, So being, um, as a human being, the survivor of, um, I guess, all kinds of childhood abuse and stuff like that, it's been very natural for me as a parent to be kind of locked in to make sure I don't do any of those things to my child. Mm -hmm. which have succeeded in the most part. Uh, you know, he's 17 years old now, and we've had no conflict, no punishment, no, you know, bickering or weird patterns of dysfunction, at least as far as I can tell. And um, that's worked out really, really well. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, what's interesting to me is a subject of, like, living in my own skin, my own person, uh, and also living with the memories of childhood trauma, what's been an interesting experience to me, and I'm hoping this touches people who may have had similar, similar childhoods to mine, is as my son got older, like he got through four, five, six, and that was a period in my life that was pretty terrorizing. So when he got to like six, seven, eight, I was just sort of like, wow, it's like I get to be normal as a six and seven and eight year old now, because now I've gone through what it's like um, with my son you know, watching him come into himself in that way. And I mean, for me, it's kind of like, oh yeah, look at, look at what it's like to be an autonomous person at that age in life and mm. you know, how precarious and fun or sorry, precocious and fun people can be. So uh, I'm, I'm sure there's some psychologists rolling their eyes going, you know what that is, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. That's not the, the most important hook to hang yourself on. And definitely that's not a really big part of how I see myself. It's just something that I've noticed. Yeah, sure. And, I mean, would, and would encourage, you know, psychology psychology or theory or not to i would encourage anyone to just notice that that you know you can regain a sense of your own autonomy from previous abuse by watching another person move through that period in their life free of abuse yeah i, I like to think of kids as uh, little mirrors yeah that, that grow up with you mm -hmm. you know they're constantly reflecting things back to you yeah. you sound just like your mother <laughs> <laughs> So if we can accept the idea of Jing, we can accept the idea that, you know, if you're going to be, be pregnant, take care of yourself and get as much help as you can. Once you have a kid and make sure it's, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, you know, like then I've said there. Another point that's important to be aware of with Jing is uh, reflect back on your own birth, no matter who you are right now, just reflect back on your own birth and ask yourself, how many siblings do I have and how close were they born to me? Because that's going to, on a subtle level, have something to do with what we call Qing. And if you're a mom having babies right now, keep them at least three, four years apart if you can. You know, based on traditional wisdom and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, scientifically, it's hard to say whether or not we can prove anything. But I've seen it for over 20 years where, you know, moms, say, in their 50s who had four kids within six years, they have significantly worse problems going into old age than women who had, say, the same number of kids over twice as many years. Mm -hmm. well, so again, subtle, subtle thing just about how humans generate humans in the sense of Jing. Yeah, I, I think of that. Uh, I mean, I know in my family, uh, my next oldest sibling is four years older than I am. Mm -hmm. uh, but my mom miscarried the year before I was born. 
uh, late, like I think seven or eight months or something like that. Whoa. Yeah, so well, that explains a lot. Yeah, well, it does. <laughs> it totally does. Sorry. I mean, we're friends. That was meant in a really, really loving way. <laughs> <laughs> and he's seen my medical records. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, the uh, uh, the the dish towel was totally wrung out, and then she got pregnant again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, the amount of uh, life and energy that it took in order to to have the one kid um yeah anyways i'm just sort of self-reflecting on the Mm -hmm. comments you made about you know pacing yeah yeah which i think is really really important to consider but i think just i'm having this moment as who i am in the world to want to say to you and anybody who's um maybe projecting that onto themselves a little bit keep in mind anthony you had the good fortune of being raised up in a traditional extended family so jing comes from the outside in. it's not like you're born with a battery and it's you know past due or something <laughs> it's more like that's one element of many that nurtures and nourishes and, and allows us to fulfill our what you may call genetic destiny and i'm personally convinced that you could be at any age and rejuvenate your genetic potential to its maximum up until probably about 60 hmm. yeah gonna write a book about it someday <laughs> or a podcast. <laughs> well, well, maybe we'll start there. Or a blog post or something, but yeah. Well, actually, we did one a little while ago on, on aging and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, even the last one was a little bit about aging as well, uh, yeah. all about Alzheimer's, episode 48. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you, almost, you almost forgot, <laughs> It's eh? a theme, eh? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, getting past um, uh, birth, yeah. um, where to next? Well, I think I'm just going to finish the birthing by reminding people that the way you're born, how traumatic it is, whether or not it's a C-section, you know, in that sense of trauma, but also in the sense of microbiome and things like that, please make sure your kids are born normally. And if not, make sure there's a vaginal swab. If you can leave the umbilicus attached for as close to 45 minutes as you can before it's cut. Um, Some people do and don't buy into the idea that you should keep your placenta and make a soup out of it, which I'll leave for more direct questions if that ever comes up. Um, but just the, the idea of traumatic birth and, you know, some kids are born and they have some circulatory issue or immunological issue, and then they're left in a tent for like a week, mm-hmm. you know, on formula or something. And obviously formula is a big deal. So I think we could just do a podcast on, when we could get our friend Judy to come on the show and we could talk about breastfeeding and how important that is. Absolutely. <laughs> so all of that stuff and... Uh, obviously, you know, the idea of attachment parenting is statistically still way outmaneuvering everybody else who thinks just dumping your kid in the crib and walking away is the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so clinically, I'll just run through the gambit quick. And if you're a clinician and you're wanting to uh, take notes, I guess, <laughs> now time is a, be a good time to get a pen and paper. Or if you're a person with some complex concerns and you're trying to find a way to track back maybe where things started to get a little bit weird. So I'm just going to, from the moment you're born. So if you're born and you have any kind of respiratory or skin problem, then um, that predisposes you to a whole bunch of immune system problems, especially uh, adolescent allergies and uh, potentially some reproductive issues. If around two, three, four, you start getting chronic urates, chronic sore throats, or again, chronic skin problems, uh, same thing. It's just weirdly enough, you might start uh, getting immune system problems in your late 20s. Hmm. And uh, for those of you who are wondering where the hell I'm getting this, it's just empirical experience from my practice. 
Um, then you get a little bit, yeah, same thing about two, three, four. Another thing that can happen is the tendency towards more colicky constipation, uh, dental hygiene stuff, throat, uh, conditions, say like tonsillitis. It's not that as common, really, really young, but if you are seeing somebody really young, having those kind of problems, especially before they really get into school, then you want to really make sure that, you know, in terms of diet, lifestyle, and health, you're doing everything to keep immune triggers uh, away from that person because their immune system is forming in an erratically aggressive way. Hmm. So if we can keep it calm and let it get stronger and more focused, you know, then they're going to be great. And in no way am I saying we should immunologically separate our kids from the world. We should just become more aware of triggers and monitor them and, uh, I don't know, even chart them a little bit like, okay, this, this month we're going to have eggs this month. We're not going to have eggs. What's going on. And I know that sounds neurotic and, and weird, but, um, I know we could do a podcast about this too, but notice that none of us have a grandmother in our kitchen anymore. At least most of us don't. And she used to be, you know, the nurturer, the counselor, the priest, nun person, and the folk medicine healer who just happens to always be there 24 seven, making people suck back their cod liver oil or, whatever bitter tea is the right thing to drink in spring or, you know, how to deal with weird, you know, immune system stuff, you know? So as much as we're all busy as, uh, hacking everything else, someone's going to have to pick up the grandma role in the kitchen in the sense of folk medicine. Mm -hmm. If that's not happening, put a jar called a swear jar or too lazy to, you know, take that part of my life and my family's health seriously. Sorry if that sounded bitchy, but show up, eh? <laughs> Canadian moment. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, someone's got to have that role. So again, as kids get going just before they start getting to school, if they're already presenting a highly defensive immune system, you want to make sure that's sorted out before they end up in a room of 30 kids covered in boogers. Yeah. <laughs> or peanuts or eggs or oh, yeah, dairy or gluten or thanks. All that stuff too. Yeah. So there's a really big, uh, shift in the immune system statistics and health and symptoms, especially in the modern world between like five, six, seven, and around eight years old. Right now, I'm not sure why I want to reference this, but, um, I'm sure there's a reason. So in Chinese medicine, we have the appreciation that women age in cycles of seven years okay. and men or boys uh, age in cycles of eight years, you know, in the sense of, you know, say if we did you know, at seven, girls are going to probably bump into certain metabolic changes, and at 14, and then at 21, and on and on. And guys, it would be 8, 16, 24, all the way throughout the rest of your life. And I've seen a lot of things just clinically where I'm like, oh, wow, look at that. This this timing is like right out of the classics, so to speak. Hmm. So around seven, eight is when the immune system starts to form in a slightly more organized and consistent way. It's technically still... I guess kind of all over the place and I'll come back to that, uh, in another way in a bit, but, uh, it is starting to get more kind of fixed. And this is often when you start to see either neurological things start to begin to present themselves consistently, consistently, if it's ADD, ADHD, uh, certain parts of the spectrum of autism, they often show up a lot earlier if it's pretty serious, but this is where you start picking up the slighter stuff. Hmm. Um, chronic digestive problems and a lot of socialized kind of, uh, you know, just patterns of, uh, stress and response and, you know, bonding in peer groups and stuff like that. It really gets accelerated around eight. And, and also, and I'm just going to say this again, especially neurologically, if a 
person is prone to a certain behavioral uh, anomaly or I don't know, called a boundary issue or something like that, you're going to start to see it around eight, nine, ten. You know, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten if it's a girl. So, um, just throwing that out there that you know, keep, keep keep an eye on things around eight or make sure you're being really focused on health and you know less sugar and crap because that's a big development developmental arc, right? And you could. So for some reason, I'm picturing like a race car on a big, huge desert sand flat. And it's trying to go from point A to point B or line A, side of the desert, to side B. And I guess you could say the most ideal thing in my metaphor is to drive straight across from A to B. Mm -hmm. But if, as you're trying to get from childhood to adulthood in the sense of the formation of your physicality, your immune system, and how tall you are and whatever... Everything that throws you off, you know, makes it harder for you uh, to get where you're going because the body always have to, has to keep self-correcting towards where it's genetically kind of naturally trying to go. So we actually end up aging a bit quicker hmm. and or maturing a bit slower or both. Right. So we might, you know, have a bit later of a puberty, but then we end up getting gray hair at 45. Hmm. As an exaggerated example, that's way over the top, but I'm just trying to help people understand kind of the perspective. Well, I, th I think, um, this is the part of the conversation where you can throw the word iPhone back into things. I mean, in terms of, um, brain development and, uh, cognition and that sort of stuff. Um, what I've read, uh, different, uh, different articles, certainly, um, talking about how, uh, screen time can, um, really hinder the development of a, of a young brain. Yeah, um, and my, go ahead. And that's just bad news, <laughs> you know, it, it, to, to, to think about how it was that we grew up, you know, playing out in the yard kind of thing, as opposed to focused in on, I don't know, uh, angry birds or something. Yeah. I've still never seen that. Maybe I'll get through the entire existence without knowing what that actually is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, so this is my biggest concern between eight and 14 with respect to screens. So we are a screen, uh, acquiescent culture. It's been about 60 years where sit and watch, sit and watch, and now we're screen uh, accepting parents with screen addicted kids. Mm -hmm. And now we're screen addicted parents. Mm -hmm. Not just screen accepting, but screen addicted parents passively, naturally going, well, screens are okay. I'm okay. So now we have screen addicted kids raised by screen addicted parents, but the screen our kids have is in their hand and there's a body language primate kind of natural subtle communication, which is I'm alone and I'm busy or I'm having this intimate conversation with my friend on, you know, whatever's on my phone, or I'm busy looking up some fact for my homework for school, or I'm, you know, following some trend on Reddit or something. And, you know, the, the natural instinct of people is if you're that intimately engaged with something is to just give people a different amount of space. Right. So now we have screen addicted parents who've got lots to do on their own screen, screen addict, screen addicted kid looking at a screen. Maybe we've all got earbuds in too, because why the hell not? And, um, and this is normal now. I mean, sometimes this happens in between me and my kid, I'm making supper and I'm listening to an audio book and he comes in and he's listening to a podcast and we have a little, you know, banter and fun thing about what we're each listening to and when supper's going to be ready. But then we default back to our, our inner, uh, solo entertainment experience. And I don't think that's good or bad. I just think you have to be really conscious of the distinction that's happening. Mm-hmm. Cause this is where the rubber hits the road. I'm a child. 
I can look into something I can hold in my hand and I can solve problems immediately. That's never happened before. Mm-hmm. And it's not technically play. I mean, if you're playing some bird game or something on your phone, it's maybe like a bit of a hand-eye coordination experience in the sense of what doctors worry about. Um, but when you're sitting there going through a text-driven informational causal stream of you know thought result, thought result, thought result, that becomes your predictive uh, expectation of everything in the world. Mm-hmm. So you put down your screen and you're sitting at a dinner table and maybe you have relatives over new people, new faces, new egos, new kinds of interaction, different personalities, maybe more or less patience, more or less attention, more or less judgment, more or less, uh, sarcastic, sardonic humor, whatever's going on around the table, the natural instinct of, uh, people who are screen addicted and solo screen addicted is I can't wait to get away from all of this confusing information and opinion because my instinct is I can have a thought query the Google God and get a response as fast as I can move my thumbs. Mm -hmm. So to sit for an hour and a half in a room full of strangers with all of their fairly distracting and almost kind of jarring personality stuff compared to the subjective experience of, oh, here's me looking at me or my thoughts or the answers to my thoughts or the natural extrapolation of where thoughts naturally go by myself. Mm. And it creates what I have come to call an interactive overwhelm or an interactive overstrain. Overstrain. Yeah. Cause I see this a lot and I do not have an opinion. Really, really important. As I say this, this is not about my opinion about what we're doing. It is about my observation and my concern about the adaptability and the innate expectation of conscious beings within our families, within our cultures, our towns, our societies, our schools, being able to attend to the other people in the room mm-hmm. wholeheartedly for as long as necessary without the clenching gut, like, you know, nervous feeling of, I can't wait to get away from all of this and be alone with myself and my thoughts and the stream of floating consciousness uh, and, 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 you know, thought response, question, answer, you know, um, compulsion satisfaction, mm-hmm. you know, cause stimulation addiction is almost kind of like self-imposed, uh, OCD and a year I'm seeing more and more of this pattern of self-identification, not as a clinical disorder, but just as habit. There's a, uh, documentary that I watched, um, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, but it was a documentary about uh, kids who were addicted to porn. Kids? Kids, yeah. Can you give me an age for what you mean by kid? 11, 12, 13, 14, really? 15, 16, 17. Uh. Yeah. Uh, because pornography is so available to them, thanks to the internet, um, and because of the uh, whatever it is that goes on inside of us when we see that kind of stuff, and how the what you're talking about, about the, um, expectation of seeing things, um, instantly and getting information instantly and that sort of thing. It just makes up for this, um, uh, chemical cocktail, if you will, inside of the small, uh, person's brain, uh, both boys and girls that hooks them in and they can't really uh, get out of it. And, uh, they were talking to this one fellow, um, 
can't remember the, the anyways, I, I don't remember all the details. What I do remember what he said was something that, um, so for me and you, uh, being as old as we are, uh, 50-ish, um, when we were kids, we didn't have access to that kind of information. We didn't have access to porn everywhere in terms of, you know, uh, advertising, let alone um, um, YouTube videos or any of that other kind of stuff, or porn or that sort of thing. Um, what we had access to was, you know, maybe um, an older brother's um, Playboy magazine um, stuffed uh, somewhere under a mattress, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, that uh, is a far different experience to be able to um, uh, look at a magazine and, you know, have your little masturbation fantasy experience, whatever it is, and to carry on and go on with your life. So in adults, you know, um, that ha had that kind of paper-based porn experience, um, it's easy for them to not be addicted to their phone uh, because they don't have the same, um, th their brains developed in a certain way and they didn't, um, uh, form this sort of addictive crutch that these kids are from the get-go. So the developing mind dipping into this pool of Google slash porn is um, a real dangerous mix for kids, uh, whereas for us as adults who didn't have iPhones or screen time or anything like that when we were, we were kids, uh, it's easy for us to get in and out of that sort of thing. Um, and as soon as, as, soon as I um, saw this, podcast or sorry this uh, this documentary i was i was totally um disgusted by my iphone in some way because i i i, I just you know I, I understand that you're trying to express this as kind of a um scientific perspective that you're offering there but i'm not the doctor here <laughs> so i'm gonna say that iphones are bad news man or uh, in my experience like I, I sort of noticed myself how i get sort of sucked into things and so i, I can imagine how um even more uh, magnetic uh, a screen would be uh, to a kid. I wait till VR comes out. Oh man! Well, I guess it's here now. I haven't tried it yet. Yeah. Don't don't. I'm, I don't think maybe I will. And it's not a moral thing or some. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, it's not. It's not a moral thing about VR. It's just I'm just a, aware that experientially, it's very easy for me to. Um, waste a lot of time trying new things mm -hmm. and get so excited about the, whatever the result of the experience of the new thing is that I don't ask myself whether or not it's actually what I should be or really wants to be doing right now. So I can easily see that kind of Dora the Explorer part of my personality being, you know, months going by of, of me just trying things out because I'm curious and then looking back going, damn, that was three months of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying I'll never, you know, stick in the mud, ever do it. I just, I'm just aware that I probably just end up wasting a lot of time going, wee. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't think we're uh, immune to um, what devices do uh, at any age. And, uh, no, you know, no. And I mean, yeah, cer certainly, I mean, I, I didn't want to derail the conversation here, but I, I just wanted to sort of illustrate how uh, important I think it is this aspect of what it is you're talking about, that um, screen time and kids is, um, uh, what's the right way to say it without judgment? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I think it would be, I don't know, maybe in a few weeks we could do a podcast just about the effect of pornography on intimacy and sexual health. Sure. Cause it's huge. Yeah. 
So another thing that comes to mind around, uh, especially about um, 10 to about 15, in the sense of uh, neurological development, personal development, and I, I admit that this is sort of a hypothesis uh, of mine, um, potentially a theory, because there's lots to... Um, there's a lot of associations and correlations that make this seem to be like a good uh, and important avenue for research. So I call this um, AONID or adolescent onset neurological inflammatory disorder. That's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're going to make an acronym, you might as well have some fun. So the reason I kind of invented that hypothesis, uh, honestly, was based on a couple of years of sitting, um, doing these sort of consultations with people who are trying to make a transition from pharmaceutical antidepressants over to uh, things like CBD and cannabis and, you know, a more natural way to resolve the why. So uh, I'll try to unpack this in the most efficient way I can. So when you look at the research on what we call SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, for the most part, the idea that they actually interact with serotonin receptors is a theory. You know, obviously there's some, you know, interaction that we can uh, correlate, but it's never been proven as, a, as the actual causative effect of, of those drugs. However, there's a lot more research on that class of drugs that actually causally proves that they affect the, especially the frontal cortex, as a mild, if not pretty crappy, anti-inflammatory. Hmm. So, you know, statistically those things have, I don't know, not that great of a, you know, sales pitch in the sense of 99% of people who take this pill are suddenly 100% better. It's more like, well, give it a few months and it might do something. Right. You know, in, in the sense of what you would consider to be a dose response um, reliance relationship with any kind of medications. I mean, if you take a bunch of codeine, you're going to, you know, not really feel it. <laughs> right. You know, whereas if you're taking a medication for months to try and improve your cognitive ability or your mood or your state, you know, waiting three months to see what it's going to do is, I don't know, that just seems like <laughs> an interesting thing just to bring up for people is it's all very speculative and... Um, then we bring in the placebo effect and all kinds of other things. But the reason I bring that up is when you're talking to people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s about when anxiety, depression, insomnia, OCD, um, what people refer to as certain kinds of ADHD patterns, uh, when PTSD-like symptoms really start to get accelerated, it's always around puberty. Hmm. Well, I shouldn't say always, but statistically alarmingly often enough around puberty where you're like why and so what's your take on that what's what's the <laughs> glad you asked <laughs> there's this thing called aonid <laughs> so i just want to walk into the kind of mechanism of how that works um you don't have to be seeing this but if you're not watching the video component of the podcast then just prepare yourself for use of your imagination Drumroll, please. Because <laughs> usually when I do this in the clinic, I either have a teddy bear or a Nerf ball in my hand. Yes, I have teddy bears and Nerf balls in my clinic. Just for this reason. Just, well... Well, so one of the reasons. <laughs> <laughs> do not go there. All right, anyway. So just picture for a moment that I got a big Nerf ball in my hand. And it's going to represent about an eight-year-old brain. And that brain is going to include your gut, your microbiome, your immune system, your diet, your family. 
because that's everything that's feeding back into what we call your brain. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, cool. That usually takes most people a minute. <laughs> so um, when you look into that brain in the sense of a normal kid, and then you can imagine a microscope or something, you're going to see hormones, you're going to see neurotransmitters, you're going to see fats and cholesterol, you're going to see this big, chaotic, messy sponge, which is kind of like why kids are like puppies. They're happy, they're sad, they're laughing, they're crying, they're awake, they're asleep. And again, you can't see this, but imagine a big boat coming along dun, 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 and crashing into the little Nerf ball brain. And that big boat that's coming along is the hormonal chemistry of puberty. Hmm. Now, a lot of us don't know this. Um, when puberty happens, the structure and functionality of your brain fundamentally changes. Puppy, you know, apex predator. A little bit different, right? So healthy brain, puberty, you know, I'm thinking of the matrix when a person turns from one person into the other and that weird sound is in the background, right? <laughs> Not so comfortable, but now you're, you know, now you're an adult, now you're an agent or something. Mm -hmm. Try not to take that past the imagery. <laughs> anyway, so let's go back. New Nerf ball, eight-year-old. And for whatever reason, this eight-year-old is growing up in a traumatic environment. Or, and or, this child is genetically predisposed to certain kind of reactions to certain things in their food. Or, even if they're not genetically uh, disposed to uh, some kind of sensitivity or, or allergy, um, if you keep eating neurotoxins, even if you have the most robust immune system, eventually it's going to say, ow, ow, ow. And interestingly enough, most extruded breakfast cereals contain the kind of addictive inflammatory neurotoxin that starts this whole problem off. Mm -hmm. Lots of other factors. It could be your mom's hairspray. It could be your aunt Sally's perfume. It could be uncle Bob because he's a bit of a creep and keeps wanting you to sit on his lap in some way that you know just is wrong or worse. Not trying to be flippant about that in any way. So now here we have this eight year old brain and it is, you know, in its happy soup. Uh, experiencing and trying to resolve any combination of any of those kinds of influence from breakfast cereal to Uncle Bob and whatever else is going on. So uh, if we look into that Nerf ball into that brain, hormones, neurotransmitters, fats, cholesterol, all these other fun things, and the glial cells inside the brain are expressing an immunological protective stance. Something's wrong in the world. And your glial cells are meant to be like lunchboxes for your neurophysiology. So if your lunchboxes now have a mousetrap in them and they produce inflammation, the rate at which your brain can repair itself, how fast you learn no ideas, the structural integrity of your sleep and a whole bunch of other things starts to get a little bit fragile. And then along comes, dun, 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 the big scary boat of puberty. <laughs> I'm not sure why I think of it as a boat, but you know, bonk. Um, if you have a mildly inflamed pre-adolescent brain and then it's jarringly assaulted by the inevitable um, maturing consequence of, of adult sex hormones, and this is, I can't cite this as an exact scientific number, but I would say intuitively it feels just right. I would say that the inflammatory reactive tendency of your glial cells inside your brain, including all your microbiome and your gut and everything else, um, is going to go up 400%. 400. Wow. Um, that, that's just, for whatever reason, again, intuitively, my, my mind just keeps going to that. And, and there's no research on this that says exactly, uh, you know, 
the number for everybody or the number for people with trauma or the number for people with gluten sensitivity. But I think in the next 20 years, those numbers are going to start coming up as we start uh, reverse engineering how this whole thing is happening. Because the number of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s who are suffering from neurological inflammatory disease or symptomology or complex uh, chronic processes with feedback loops and stuff like that is everybody who's sick. Hmm. Everybody who's sick. Hmm. Just maybe I should say that again. <laughs> Everybody who's sick. So when you look at this aeonid thing or this neurological inflammatory thing and how puberty changes the brain, it's no wonder why so many of our children right now in high school, 12, 13, 14, 15, are on a pharmaceutical. Hmm. Is it really that many? It's insane compared to, I don't know, I don't even think the word pharmaceutical came up when I was in high school. No, like I didn't know anybody who was on anything. Never mind, you know, poor Billy who's got that Ritalin thing or something. Pharmacy is where you got your pictures taken. Maybe <laughs> that's <laughs> what it was when I was a kid. <laughs> I didn't grow up with stores, anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm just playing that out there for you know individuals listening to this. Does that ring true to your experience? Did you find that around puberty you became weirdly subjectively self-aware? and in some way precariously self-aware and in some way uh, overtly more careful with dealing with other people's stuff? Or did you find yourself more uh, lovingly embraced by things like cannabis or alcohol or other things to keep you uh, calm and, and consistent in, in your state? Because that's the thing that most of us are seeking is some kind of state shift capacity to normalize our well-being or our, our state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Nothing does it better than things like, you know, drugs, alcohol, mm -hmm. you know, outside of obviously spiritual practice and exercise and all the other good things. But it's just bringing people's attention to that one fundamental, huge change. And this is going to go back to the podcast we did on acne, you know, a few months ago. Interesting, when you look at kids who have the predisposition for all of that stuff from childhood, the earaches, the sore throats, the tonsils, the, you know, if it was eczema or asthma as a kid or something, and then the, the mood-based stuff, the memory-based stuff, the sleep-based stuff, and then the acne, and then the more cystic acne, and then the more other things that just say the inflammatory reaction of your immune system to your gut bugs and your hormonal physiology is way out of whack. Because hmm. again, that podcast was called Acne, Hormones, Antibiotics, What? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yep. So I'm just bringing people's attention to the fact that there has to be this melange of imbalances with all of those systems to produce all of that neurological stuff, as well as something as profuse as acne and like 80% of teenagers, 80% mm -hmm. of kids get acne. It's not 80% of kids have a neurological inflammatory disorder, but they are connected through association. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I forgot how old we were. Uh, uh, now around 15, 15. Yeah. So th this is basically where I would say this, this is where I'd want to bring the conversation back into the screen thing mm -hmm. and the interactive overwhelm thing, because if all of your immune systems dysfunction is like 80% of it is driven by stress in whatever way you read that in the world and you can't really handle even talking to your, you know, family about whether or not you're pissed off, uh, because you're interactively muted because you have had this, you know, long engaging process of, of how to solve problems immediately with, with a screen and yourself. Uh, that's my biggest concern, you know, cause I, when I work with kids clinically, 
uh, often I have to go through this, you know, period of time of kind of behaving goofy and dropping pins on the floor and doing other things to seem like, um, what's going on with my body language and personality is very diffuse in the room. You know, I'm wandering around doing things and then I have this interaction with my clipboard or my pen or, you know, I make some offhand joke and I don't get too heavy with eye contact or other things to give them a chance to feel like they, they're actually, you know, not alone in the room, but, you know, they're in the room and nothing's imposing on them with a sense of overwhelm. And then I bring my attention back to them more carefully to try to draw them out a little bit. And you can, you can see their body language wanting to withdraw towards a small uh, volume of space if it's too much. And then usually I go back and chat with a parent or go and look at my bookshelf or randomly just, I think I heard something out front. I have to go and check with my receptionist. I'll be right back. And then I come back in and, you know, it, it's, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I'm not a stupid person. Our children have fundamentally changed in their adaptability of interaction. And they're going to show us, I think, um, how it is that that's going to look for the next couple of generations. Because we can't just go out, walk up and tell them, you guys are doing this wrong. Sorry, we broke your brains with our, you know, narcissism and lack of time. Although that would be honest, but... <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and it's, I'm not trying to blame anybody here. I'm just saying if you're a conscious person and you want to raise conscious, healthy kids, we have to reverse engineer some things that have gone wrong. Not mm -hmm. only diet, not only, you know, being single parents or all these other things, but the dominant feature of poor health is screen time. Yeah. Well, we're primates. If you can't groom an angry monkey, you're in trouble. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I've met some teens, uh, in the past, I'd say a year or so. And, um, their, uh, I think capacity, uh, like just about everything, um, just seems so, uh, different. And, you know, I couldn't put, really put my finger on it and, you know, yes, just because of the conversation, I want to say that it is all screen time, mm -hmm. but, um, how, how, how they actually deal with each other, how they actually interacted with me, mm -hmm. uh, was just, um, different than my experience of kids, my, when, when I was that age, right. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I just need to be very clear. They're not about right and wrong. It's not about whose fault it is. It's about whether or not we are aware that our consensual adaptability is our experience of culture and family. And right now our consensual adaptability has been hijacked by a certain behavior. And all of us, unless you do not have a, you know, a smartphone, um, are going to be impacted by that. Like we said, we're coming up on 50 that screen thing has fundamentally and profoundly changed my experience and expectation of my experience almost every hour of my day. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to say positively or negatively, but I'm aware that it's an appendage in my life. If I don't have that, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I know how to put that down and say, okay, I'm going to take a weekend off and I irritate all of the people who try and connect with me through the computer because I just shut it off. Um, but I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be, you know, 30 years younger, 40 years younger and have no idea of the difference. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's an important thing to, to, to note that, um, they, 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 they have no perception of what life is, um, when it's not like that. Yeah. And again, if we're going to be conscious about this, let's give ourselves a generation to keep talking about it hopefully in person, hopefully with some uncontrolled body language, hopefully with a little bit of debate and some tongue in cheek sardonic humor and a little bit of conflict. 
because it's those things that are, you know, jarring people who don't know how to deal with, uh, you know, people say a big hair personality, you know, that that's, you're just going to overwhelm people because they, they don't, they don't know how to filter all that information and that's instinctually driven information. So it goes right into your survival center. It's not like, oh, there's that, you know, weird lady who gets on the bus, you know, two blocks after me and she always sits down and smells funny and likes to talk. You know, I mean, that, that, that could be a, a normal experience for people. And then you're instinctually driven to try and, you know, meter out how that, that's going to balance out. But if your instinct is, oh my God, stranger danger, put up a, a, a wall of body language saying, I really don't want to deal with your, whatever it is. And please let me just sit here with, with my, uh, sort of confirmation bias device to, to keep, you know, zooming into the world in the direction that I get instant gratification from. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm trying to make a point, I'm polarizing this on purpose, but that that's something we need to learn to question. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there should be like a special armband, you know, where we all walk around interrupting young people with phones. Hello, I'm your official body language interpreter. I'd just like to spend an hour with you waving my arms around and making really angry faces just so that your back brain is comfortable with the fact that, you know, when nearby primates act overtly and uh, perhaps out of expectation, they're in no danger to you. They're just, you know, being goofy and weird and pissed off. You know, as silly as this is going to sound, that may actually turn out to be a thing. Yeah, and I'm just trying to make a point, and I, I admit I'm, my sense of humor tends to stand up comedy, which means I try to offend people to make other people laugh. So it's it's not that I go out of my way to be a jerk. It's it's just my nature to kind of make fun of things a little bit. So if that anything I've said in the last hour was edgy, good because that's the point of the show is that we need to learn to just sort of adapt to other people a little bit better and have a sense of humor and be more patient and um allow ourselves to to be a bit messy well i, I think the idea of uh, listening to podcasts for me and certainly uh, with the focus that we have with this podcast is um how to be a better um how to be in better relationship with yourself both uh you know it's it's uh, Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, mm -hmm. you know, and we're focused on our own individual health and that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and yet, um, this whole conversation around screen time and development of kids is something where um, we're focused on our, uh, what is it, our DNA that actually says that we're, you know, communal beatings, you mm -hmm. know, um, I think it's really important for you to actually poke some people in the eyes and say, hey, this is important. Look at this. Look at how we're actually living. Yep. Um, no judgment, but this is what's going on. And please be aware of it and see if you can do something about it for yourself. So I'm going to lay this out in another way very, very quickly based on child development psychology. Hmm. So if you were to do a rudimentary class, you know, seminar in child developmental psychology, you're, you're going to learn about the fundamental four stages of human growth. Okay. Uh, stage one is called being cared for because you're basically, you know, as an infant, it's going to be a couple of years before you can even like, you know, open a cupboard or a fridge door to try and find anything deep. Right. So that's why we need that cared for experience, but it's an instinctual thing between the ages of two and four to, uh, create a boundary between you and other people. And that transition is going from being cared for to being cared about which is being cared for at a distance. So now your kid's on the floor with crayons and making Lego stuff. They still need you to walk up and look at what they're doing and hopefully guess right that it's a dinosaur, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> something, you know, and, and help that person feel 
good at being alone in process and good at being acknowledged for whatever that process brought into being. Mm -hmm. And that's what being cared for is about. Right. And then maybe around eight, between eight and 12, kids start, you know, wanting a bit more distance. I, I, I know you care about me. I know you want me to be good, but I want to spend more time alone or with my friends, or I want a longer project, or I want to be alone in the backyard with some power tools or, well, you know, power tools, but something, uh, so that, um, I know I'm being cared for at a distance. And then eventually when that becomes uh, enough of a thing where a child is individuated, in that way, then you're going to start going into the third stage, which we call sharing, mm. right? Which is let's all make dinner together. And it usually starts around eight, nine, where kids want to chop up the vegetables and stir the pot and maybe help with the dishes, but not be, you know, I don't know, contractually obliged <laughs> to do the dishes <laughs> quite yet. And uh, that goes on. And then, you know, around 14 to 16, we hit this thing called cooperation where kids want to know that they have more autonomy. I can sleep over at a friend's place. My friends can sleep over here. I can stay out later with my girlfriend or boyfriend. Uh, soon I'm going to have keys to a car, you know, other things like that. So now we're able to cooperate. And that goes up into through university where maybe the parents are still supporting their, you know, kid through part of university or, uh, you know, things like that. But, you know, they're still in development. They're still becoming who they they are determined to become, and we're still talking about what it's like. But once they hit a certain age, there's no longer, it's no longer cool to talk to your, talk to your children about how to live their life, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if they don't ask you advice, shut up, <laughs> <laughs> tell a story, you know, indicate this really great movie that showed you something, or like you said, I saw this documentary on porn, I'm suggesting you might check it out. Mm -hmm. So anyway, when you get those four uh, fundamental stages of development to become an autonomous, cooperative, collective, you know, part of a community. What happens when, again, there's immunological interference because of diet and other things, and this whole uh, thing around um, interactive overwhelm starts to develop? How do you get out of the being cared for at a distance thing and move into sharing when they just want you to bring what they need to support their endeavors with the screen. And it's not that bad, but it can get that bad. I mean, mm. for most people, it's nowhere near that bad. But I think for some people, it's like, okay, it's, you know, your child has become a mad professor and they're always busy with screens and computers and games and other things. And, you know, you shyly come up like a butler and give them food and try not to get bitten and say, you know, <laughs> do their thing. And again, that's not on anyone's, you know, list of, you know, sins to, uh, you know, atone for, it's just something to be more aware of, mm -hmm. you know, that we were, we're, we're changing how maturity works fundamentally by having less, and I'm guilty of this as anybody. So I'm not, you know, on some pedestal, uh, by not having shared meal times consistently, by not having shared chore times consistently, not having individual chore expectations once you're in your teens. Cause then if you don't get enough time sharing, the interactive overwhelm comes with an instinctual debt. Hmm. Hmm. Right. So I want to say that again, you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you're on in a modern family and maybe it's a single parent family. Everyone's addicted to screens now. It's just normal, you know, no harm, no foul. That's just how we do our days. But there's an, this instinctual argument between the child and the parent about chores about going camping together, about, you know, getting whatever it is that needs to get done, done. Cause we haven't made the deep transition 
over a four or five year period from just being cared for to the instinctual desire for kids to show up and say, look what I did. I made lunch or I, you know, cleaned the garage or I did something <clears throat> to uh, affirm that I'm a, a effective, active, involved, committed member of a family or a community or a, you know, a project or something. And that's where every part of this is getting stuck for people. Wow. Because now maturity has the big speed bump and kids can feel it. Like they, they can feel the inevitable oppression of I'm supposed to be showing up in some way and it's getting more passive aggressively intense and it's getting more fractured in the sense of communication and I'm feeling more and more compelled to curl up in a corner with my device because I know something's coming around the corner. I can just feel it. But I have no idea how to adapt to it, interact with it, you know, mollify it, placate it. It's just this weird thing that builds up in, in families. Mm. And uh, the few times I've sat and talked to families about this, everyone's nodding and going, okay, now what? Well, that was going to be my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that's the now what is. Let's take a step back and review the whole thing. You know, you know here you got a kid and you're a parent, you were a kid, just take a moment and reflect. How are you actually doing with your health? How are you actually doing with your childhood? Before you start, you know, swinging ide ideology bats at your children or at your children's culture, where are you at with yours? Mm -hmm. And we're not going to make the new culture that's coming into being go away, but we can find ways to communicate across this cultural divide much better and hopefully much more playfully and hopefully, hope, hope, hopefully, with much more uh, integrity about this little glitch that's coming up, mm -hmm. you know, that's, you know, becoming a, a pretty big divide for people. And as long as we can learn to talk about it, hopefully between the two generations and those two ways of solving problems, we'll come up with something that bridges that. Because otherwise, and I would say this is inevitable within the next decade or so, otherwise we're going to create a whole new paradigm of pre-adulthood where children just decide, I know how to solve answers my own way. I don't need parents anymore. Hmm. I don't need parenting. I don't need socialization. Everybody else just screw off. And if that happens, I have no idea what's going to happen. You have a bunch of lone rangers out there, a bunch of really um, independent minds um, doing their own thing. God, I wish that was what was happening because that's what we used to be. You think so? Absolutely. You don't, you don't think that is um, so... Maybe I should clarify what I was making the analogy about is that here's a bunch of kids who are so isolated into their screens that they don't bother to look up and play with other people or engage with them at all. They're just so focused on, oh, I don't need yeah, anything. That's, that's not independence at all. Um, what would you call it then? Prison. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah. A self-limiting experiential prison. Hmm. We used to be very independent people trying to find ways to cooperate to make a better society. Right. And I'm not saying young people aren't just interested in a better society. I think that this is, and I know this is going to get a bit long on the tooth here and I'm not going to go off in some big political tirade, but the number of parents that I've talked to without their kids in the room, whose kids are belligerent and impatient and angry and on a planet killing level of consequence, completely terrified and pissed off at their parents, their parents' parents, our political system, our economic system, because they're coming into being with zero freedom for mm. their independence. They're coming into a world with a huge list of chores. They have no idea how to deal with in a political economic system that is at war with itself. 
And again, I'm not going to go into the politics or the economics. That's not my job. I'm just concerned about these young people going, oh, time to turn back into my screen then, because clearly coming out the front door to look at the world and do something about it is just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And there's that interactive overwhelm again. Yeah. Well, and I mean, things are, I I love our children. I am not judging them. I want the best for all of us. We're just stuck. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that that overwhelm, I think is what everybody experiences. And it's just amplified that much more when, um, kids are uh, so focused on screens and don't know how to deal with that in a kind of organic matter. Right. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. How much has screens affected you in that way? Oh man. Um, independence, adaptability, actual, like, I don't know, ching in the sense of, okay, I'm going to walk out the door and do my day and make a difference. And part of my paycheck comes from actually feeding into that whole system. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of knife marks in my back. (laughs) You want want to see them? No, 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 it's, it's, it's about balance. I'm not saying, I mean, here we are making a podcast for me to sit there and, you know, gore the ox of screen watching is an interesting choice, but (laughs) Well, it, it, it's, it's not about yes or no. It's about learning. Yeah. And I think for me, it's, uh, I'm acutely aware of, um, how, so for the whole of my life, even before, um, iPhones came to town or anything like that, I've always been really sensitive to, um, experiences big, ex- uh, yesterday I, uh, did a training. I led a training for an hour and a half and then I had a client meeting for another hour right after that. Uh, and I came home and I was like literally frazzled. I didn't look at any screens. I was just talking. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I know where my energy is, uh, or I'm aware of what my energy does when I do that kind of stuff. Um, and I've always been that way, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if it's, uh, empathetic or sensitive or whatever, whatever the word for it is. So you take all that and then you introduce something like, uh, screen time on top of that. Um, uh, I'm very aware of how much, um, my phone, um, will rattle me or throw me off uh, to the point where I actually have a, a phone case that actually has a, a lid, if you will, so that I don't actually physically see the screen of my phone. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, yeah. Uh, lately in the past, I don't know, four or five months, I've been using my phone, uh, in black and white. Really? I didn't uh, know you could do that. You can. That's a really good idea. Well, and the, and the idea there is, um, I don't know, color psychology, right? You know, I'm more attracted to the color blue. If you're watching this podcast today, you can say, I like the color blue. <laughs> What's blue? Facebook is blue, you know? Yeah. So is every other kind of juicy uh, app that I want to click on my phone. Um, so if I can defeat that sort of... Um, technology, if you will, that actually says, Hey, I'm a big shiny button over here. Like the notification buttons, the little red button that comes up when you have like three or four emails that are unread or thousands. If you're one of those people, um, that thing becomes, you know, it, it goes away from being the most angry insect bite that you just have to scratch to, Oh, that's it. There's no, you know, it goes from like DEF CON four <laughs> to nothing. For yep. me, right? Yeah. And then there, I asked you that question because I just wanted to ask everybody that question. Yeah. And so, anyways, I'm sort of rattling off yeah, here no, because I'm glad because I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the audience on this podcast as much as I'm part of it. Right. I mean, I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm reflecting personally, mm-hmm. um, and not wanting to hijack the whole topic here, but certainly I think that there's ways that, um, as an adult, I can, uh, manage myself better, uh, because I know how it is that I've actually, 
um, uh, experienced the world in the past and what can actually throw me off. So I would hope that our listeners could actually, um, in some way, you know, listening to this, that's what they're doing for themselves. They're actually looking for a way to take better care of themselves, right? Yeah. And I think we need a new word for addiction when it's not just scratching an itch kind of addiction, but there's a way of fitting into the world. And let's say there's five or 10 ways to fit into the world, or maybe a million billion ways to fit into the world, but each of us has to pick. And when the pick is so neurologically driven by instinct and by culture and by inflammation and by all these other factors, I think the, the amount of determination and meaning and commitment and kind of like, I don't know, so it's like, I, for some reason, I'm thinking of that moment when some musician signs their soul off to the devil, you know, it's like, okay, I can see I'm at a crossroads and there's only one way to move forward and actually get what I want out of life and have any kind of control over what happens to me. Mm-hmm. And it's black and white. I'm committed to the screens. I will not take care of my family the way I could. I will not take care of my relationships and my work life and my other things as well as I can unless that they happen to just conveniently be able to happen through screens. And, um, and again, I'm trying to find a funny way to keep saying this. This is not about my opinion. This is not about who's right or wrong or good or bad. I, I just think, you know, if, if, if I have one function in the world, it's to be litmus paper hmm. in, in the sense of, okay, I, I could walk into a situation and feel it out and maybe just report back based on, you know, my education how that's going to impact human health, especially mental health. Yeah. Based on state more than psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm um, just noting that here we are talking about, um, I think more of ourselves as adults than we are about kids. But, and this sort of connection to how... Well, we, we want our kids to grow up into being better adults than us. Right. Unless yes. we're not. Well, and I, that, that's the kind of uh, connection I was going to make that, you know, um, uh, raising healthy kids means being healthy. <laughs> yeah. Or at least being aware of what's taken people out yeah. gradually, slowly, consensually uh, with the happy smile of signing away your soul to the devil. You know, like, okay, well, it's a fork on the road. And there's only one way I can see me having any control over my experience in my life and sign me up for the best bandwidth you got. Hmm. And that, I mean, this is about context. It's not about being anti-internet. In fact, my career is moving onto the internet. So it's not about being anti-screen. It's about being pro-awareness. Yeah. And just because we're talking about kids and a lot of people listening to us are concerned about down here on the ground health choices. When it comes to kids and diets, I just need to make sure I say something so it's said. Try not to get extreme with your kids' diets in any direction. If you went ketogenic with your kids, you could damage them in a way. If you went too vegan or vegetarian, you may damage them in a way. If you went too paleo, uh, although it's, that one's harder to screw up, but you know, um, you just want to try and find the most balanced diet and not overly restrict carbohydrates because that can damage how they grow, hmm. right? So I just want to make sure that a lot of people listen to this, they're expecting maybe or hoping for some confirmation around what to do with their kids around food, lots of it. Oh, and this is a really great hack. Um, so I'm, this is like, we are finishing up the show. I just need to do two things. 
so I got interviewed to be on one of those, uh, ask 30 experts and watch them for free for five days. And then after five days, when you can't fit 30 hours of watching in, they're going to ask you to buy them all for 50 bucks or something like that. So I got to be interviewed on one of those, you know, doctor specialist things. And it's about how to be a healthy mom in the modern world. Mm-hmm. So I just want to share that, that it's out there and we'll put links in the show notes to that, uh, summit or I think it's called the healthy mom summit. Um, so people can check it out. But one thing I brought up in that conversation around food was what we call share suppers. Cause if you're going to change your diet to help your kid or you have to change your diet to help yourself, put all of the food in a big plate in the middle of the table and give everybody a bowl. Hmm. Sounds like um, a little bit of TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, more than it does anything. It's actually a native thing. Okay. Yeah. It's just like if you if you want to change what's for you know on the menu, just put it in the middle of the table, and kids will try out the new colored thing. When they watch everyone else, you know, smacking their lips and going mm, Brussels sprouts with crumbled bacon and balsamic vinegar is the bomb, and then instead of saying eat your Brussels sprouts, Billy, it's like these are so good, and you keep reaching across the table to get more. There's no imposition on the child to, to obey or to try something it may be viscerally uncomfortable finding out about. It's just curious now. Mm-hmm. Billy wants to find out what the heck these Brussels sprouts are because everyone's just mooning over them, right? <laughs> and it's been, you know, implicit in indigenous culture forever that, you know, everyone gets to choose as many things as they can. So, and so sorry that everyone gets to choose as many things as they can yeah, around diet. About anything. Around anything. And then you celebrate the choice or you tell a story about how bad that choice went or you, <laughs> <laughs> because that's about autonomy. So the reason I wanted to bring that back into the, or bring that into the conversation at the end of the show is maybe we should make mealtime screen free time and a consensual experience in curiosity. What was your day like? What did you learn? What's going on? How's mm-hmm. things, you know, because... I mean, it's, it's like the last, I don't know, I'm trying not to hear like big romantic theme music in my head, you know, that last iceberg on which humans got to behave normally before they turned into Gollum or something. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get out more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the, the thing, the, the whole idea of what you're talking about there in terms of sharing and curiosity, um, isn't it ironic that those little devices that we've been talking about so much here, what drives them is curiosity. What drives Maybe. us to, well, that's why I keep scrolling down Facebook because it's like, oh, what's next? That's oh, anticipation. What's, oh, what's next? Well, it's it's also the um, uh, clickbait kind of thing, right? This, you know, these Brussels sprouts are the best things ever, but the ones at the bottom, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's anticipation. <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I call it curiosity. You yeah. can call it what you want, but still it's that sort of, Curiosity is a 360 thing. Anticipation is a narrowing arc thing. Okay. Just not trying to be a nerd, but you are. <laughs> so <laughs> it's got me this far. <laughs> You're the nerd. I'm the guy and the other guy and the other. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd in a different direction. How's that? <laughs> yeah. um, have we... Sorry if that was a bit bad swingy. You didn't mean it that way. It was just kind of a funny moment. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm good with it. Uh, we need a little bit of levity on this podcast here. Yeah. Um, was there more that you wanted to share around the... Unless uh, an intuitive question comes to mind. I mean, maybe, maybe a quick review. You know, we're all hopefully, with respect to health, attempting to have a good amount of jing or mojo. And that's a state thing. And it's determined by all the things that have happened before and all the things you're worried about happening next. 
right? When you're raising kids, what are all the things you could do to make sure that their Qing, their potential and their experience of life is as potent and as yummy and as full of piss and vinegar as possible mm -hmm. without turning your children into nightmare narcissists, right? You know, so it's just this idea, like, how can we revitalize our, our, our home life, our family life, our relationships? Because we've become passive enough to allow this infiltration of this barrier of screens, maybe just a little too far, mm. you know, maybe way too far or maybe not far enough until we figure this out. I don't know. I just wanted to bring it up because I'm seeing so many people just overwhelmed by basic interaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um. And, and sorry, and just obviously, um, back to the autoimmune thing. I mean, we're trying to keep our kids from getting as sick as most people are getting now, just in case that hasn't come across mm -hmm. with well, food. <laughs> the, the, the idea of being, uh, I guess, conscious or aware of, uh, what's actually going on in the world and how to actually deal with that is, um, definitely good medicine, I'd say. Yeah. And the reason I walk through sort of like pre-birth, conception, birth, life and what happens to people with certain illnesses is just to give people listening to this, especially parents, kind of a checklist. Okay, my kid did not get otitis media, those bad earaches at all. My kid still has their tonsils. My kid didn't ever got eczema or asthma. This is all going really, really well. Or my kid was born with eczema and then they got otitis media, the earaches at two, and then they ended up having their tonsils out at six and then their adenoids at eight. And now they have this weird uh, pharmaceutical to keep them from having some kind of intermittent rage, potentially autistic thing going on and, and, and. So there's lots, lots between those two. It's just, there's a lot we can do about it from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awareness is, uh, is a pretty key thing. Um, this has certainly brought up a whole bunch of ideas that I'm sure we're going to talk about as soon as we shut off the microphones here. Yeah. And if this has triggered anything good, bad, weird, anything, send us a comment, send us a question. And, and again, I'm not trying to be judgy. I'm just trying to bring our attention to something that's, well, no, kind of weirding me out a little bit. And mm -hmm. I live in a town of 10,000 people where, you know, we're probably five years behind what it's like in a big city. I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Two. Do well. I mean, I'm just saying it's possible that uh, I'm not even as aware of how kind of kooky this could be. Yeah, sure. Um, interesting topic today. Thanks. Uh, raising healthy kids. Mm -hmm. Who knew that I could actually be part of that conversation <laughs> and learn something? Takes a village. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uncle there. Anthony. Uncle Tony. There we go. Here's Uncle Tony. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a as a kid, I always thought myself being a really great uncle, and never saw myself being a parent. Mm. Uh, and that's come true. Mm -hmm. um, which is all kinds of cool. Uh, Raising Healthy Kids, episode 49, uh, Fusion Health Radio. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Patreon if you want to give us some support and some financial loving to help us uh, make this podcast bigger and better. That would be a great thing. Uh, send your ideas, your feedback, your concerns, your kudos uh, to Michael. Care of, um, I guess, your website, Integrative Health Solutions.ca. Yeah, that or uh, I think Fusion Health Radio on Facebook on is... Facebook. I don't know. Right. Dare, dare I bring us back to the big blue screen and after <laughs> flailing at that for an hour or so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's probably people surfing Facebook right now. And I'm just going to throw this out there because um, I'm realizing that I'm pretty shy about some things that isn't really helping me or other people as much. 
So I'm also going to link to in the show notes to a cleansing program that I have uh, that usually starts in the spring or in the fall, but I'm going to be rearranging it uh, over the next little while so that uh, I think people could start every two months instead, instead of twice a year. So I'll put the link to that and it may or may not be 100% um, dialed into exactly how I want it to look, but I'm just wanting to make sure that that resource is there for people. Like if they want to spend 10 weeks basically going through a, a pretty inexpensive process considered what's out there uh, to learn about all your body systems, what they do, what goes wrong, what to do about it, to do some self-quantification. And uh, I don't know, I've basically learned that kind of grandmother wisdom, folk medicine stuff that may or may not be in your kitchen. So, mm-hmm. uh, Episode 47, The Wisdom of Spring. Right. We'll give you a lot more information about that. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah we talked about the spring cleanse quite a bit there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of great ideas coming out of this podcast. Holy cow. <laughs> Yay. (laughs) And I think we're done. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Very interesting conversation today, Michael. Thanks for uh, tuning in and showing up and uh, spreading the the good words. Awesome. See you next time. Take care. Cook well, eat well, and be well. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio. 